Hi, I'm Mason, pastor of Vision and Preaching here at Resurrection Church. Thanks for tuning in to this teaching from one of our morning worship services. This is not meant in any way to supplant your teaching at your local church, but we hope you find this helpful in your walk with Christ. Who is this man? The question lingers through every chapter of Mark. Three groups of people seem to keep reappearing in Mark's gospel with their own answer to the question. The crowds were astonished by Christ. They watched him perform miracles and teach with more authority than they had ever heard. Is this Elijah? Is this John the Baptist? Or is this someone far greater? The religious leaders hated Christ. They couldn't stand the attention he received, but more importantly, they couldn't stand the threat to their power that he posed. The disciples, they followed him. Sure, they will spend most of the gospel quite confused, hardly understanding why Jesus is saying and doing such things, but they trusted him. As we journey through Mark, the gospel writer will pose to us a question. Who do you say he is? Every miracle, every interaction, every parable, they're all leading somewhere. They're all leading to a coronation, but it's not a coronation you'd expect because Jesus isn't the sort of king you'd expect. You guys can be seated. Today's uh, sermon comes from the book of Mark, chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declare all foods clean. 
And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's pray. God, we praise you for this morning. Uh, Thank you for this family. Thank you for this space. God, thank you for um, being here with us. Um, And God, we pray for the rest of this morning. Pray for Mason as he um, preaches from your word. God, that uh, everything that he tells us will be directly from you. God, that we may be a group of people who listens, who hears, um, who are not critics, God, but who are contributors. Um, We thank you for calling us from death to life. Uh, God, we praise you for for all the ways that you have richly blessed us, and we pray now as um, we prepare to to give our tithes and offerings that um, we don't hold anything back from you because it's already yours, and that we joyfully give to to upbuild your kingdom. God, and we pray for Rez kids. We thank you for um, young hearts and young minds who are here, God, and we know that your word never returns void regardless of who it falls on, and we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Speaking of res kids, you guys are dismissed to go to your class. Enjoy, learn a lot. Wish you were down here, of course, the whole time. Ushers, you guys can go ahead and come forward to receive our tithes and offerings for the morning. Well, good morning. It is really good to be here. I'm glad to see all of you. Uh, My name is Mason. I'm the lead pastor here at Resurrection. And uh, you've picked a good morning to be here for a couple of reasons. One, it's a uh, big morning in the macro scheme of things in our church because I have some keys now that I didn't have last Sunday. So here's the key to the Capitol Theater that we now own. So uh, praise God for that. See, y'all are clapping now, but you weren't the ones working a concert from 2 p.m. to 11 p.m. yesterday. That was me, newfound concert promoter and Resurrection Church pastor Mason Ballard. So... Uh, we actually had fun. They would ask me a question, and guess what I would say? I don't know. Where's the heat? I don't know. Where's the bathroom? Is it right there? Where's the toilet paper for the bathrooms? should be in the bathroom. It's not. Okay, I'll be right back. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. So we're, we're learning together. So um, we are, and on a macro sense, it's a good week to be here because of, you know, th- that. But on a micro sense, we have lunch after church today. So um, stick around for lunch if you are uh, just getting connected. So uh, we are in the middle of an initiative for all of 2018 called the Faithful Unto Death Initiative, where we are uh, focusing on abiding in Christ. It means just living life as a Christian, right? Just being in the Word, being in prayer, um, sharing Christ with others. We're thinking about going with Christ. It means living on mission. How can I live as a disciple maker in the everyday stuff of life, right? Who am I actively sharing the gospel with? And finally, we're thinking about sacrificing for Christ. What am I giving up of my time, talent, and treasures for the advancement of God's kingdom? And I, I had an update last week about some of the financials uh, that was a little discouraging. We were doing better than we've ever done in our church's life by far, but we hadn't quite reached our goal for January. We were about $2,000 short, and so I shared, that, um, I shared that last Sunday. And it did not look like we were going to reach our goal for February either. Uh, but I got a text later in the day Sunday when the numbers were tallied up, and we actually exceeded our goal for February. So praise God for that. That was really exciting. Uh, we're still a little behind for the year, so keep, keep giving, keep pushing. But uh, the Lord came through in the ninth hour for us in, in February, so that was exciting. So, uh, I just wanted to encourage you with all that that's going on. Hope you'll stick around. 
after the sermon, uh, after the service, and for lunch. So I got a question for us to kind of kickstart us into the sermon. When the common man thinks about religion, what does he think about? Right? When the common man, right, Joe Smith from uh, down the street, when he thinks about religion, what does he think about? Maybe uh, going to church. Uh, maybe he thinks about trying to be a good person. Uh, maybe he thinks about not cussing. You know, for me, being a pastor is really interesting because it ends a whole lot of conversations. Uh, people will be talking, you know, they'll be like, because I, I don't look like a pastor. That's a big shock to all of you, uh, whatever a pastor's supposed to look like. Um, and so I'll be somewhere, and someone will be like, what do you do? And I'm like, here we go, you know, end of the conversation. I say, well, I'm a pastor. And generally, one of two things happen. They immediately quit cussing, or they apologize that they cussed, and I assure them I am not offended and that they are okay. But I think there's this sort of cultural idea that, that sort of leads to that action because we think about being a Christian, we think about um, being religious broadly in terms of the things that we do and the things that we don't do. There's this prevailing idea in our culture, and really in, in every culture, although it manifests itself wildly differently in other cultures, that religion is about what we do and what we don't do. It's sort of a do good and don't do bad, right? If I do good and if I don't do bad, then I think in my mind, as sort of Joe Smith in everyday town, West Virginia, um, that I'm doing religion okay. Christianity, though, brings a much deeper diagnosis to the human condition. Christianity brings a diagnosis to the human condition that cannot be solved by doing the right things, and it can't be prevented by not doing the wrong things. Christianity tells us that we have a very, very serious problem, and all of our religious efforts to do more and to try harder, to be better, to not do this, all of those things might be good if they help us get the main idea, but as the main idea of religion, they are really, really bad. There's nothing I can do to save myself because I have no ability to save myself because my condition that, needs, that I need saving from is far too serious. You could do your, the right thing for your whole life. You could live your whole life, you know, not cuss, <laughs> to use that example. Um, never be late for anything, right? Uh, give to your neighbors. Be a generous person. Be kind. You can do all of these things for your whole life, but if you're trying to do them to earn righteousness, they don't matter at all. It would be like trying to heal cancer with a Band-Aid. It's just absolutely unfeasible. Christianity, unlike every other world religion, especially the Christian cultural religion around us today, is different in that it's not about what we do, it's about what Jesus has done. The main idea for the sermon this morning is that Jesus calls us to trust not in the things we do. Jesus calls us to trust not in the things that we do, but in the things that he has done. That's sort of Christianity 101. For some of you, I think that's revelatory if you're newer to the faith, but for others of you who have sat through many gospel sermons, you're like, okay, okay, okay. But I need to remind us that we grow in the faith not by doing more and trying harder, but resting more and more in what Christ has already done for us. Jesus calls us to trust not in the things that we do, but in what he's done. Let's unpack that together. Mark chapter 7, we are, man, we're going right through Mark. We've got, I think, nine chapters left, so uh, hang in there. Uh, proud of you guys. I know many of you like shorter sermon series. Kyle James is in my discipleship group, and he was like, man, I really like those short sermon series. So you scheduled one that goes all the way to October. <laughs> I said, yeah, just for you, big dog. Mark chapter 7. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, 
with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. It is a good idea to wash your dining couch. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, we'll get there in just a moment. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 first. Uh, Under the subheading, perhaps, the disciples are different. The disciples are different. The scribes and the Pharisees have, at this point in Mark's narrative, become firmly entrenched as the enemies, the foil, the bad guy, the other, the person that Jesus is sort of constantly struggling with, these religious rulers. And so some scribes, some experts of the law have come down from Jerusalem, and they are going to, with the rest of the religious leaders, sort of continue to build their case on this heretic, this schismatic, this Jesus of Nazareth. And so they're watching his disciples, and remember, they're trying ever so uh, intently to find something that they can pin him on that is unlawful, illegal, sacrilegious, whatever that may be. And they notice that his disciples aren't doing the sorts of things they think they should be doing. His disciples aren't doing the sorts of things they think they should be doing. The most notable of which is they ask, you know, why um, are they eating with hands that are defiled, that is, unwashed? The Pharisees and Jews do not eat unless their hands are washed properly according to the traditions of the elders. So we know that they're doing, uh, the disciples of Jesus are doing some of the things that the scribes and the Pharisees are finding offensive. They're finding them to be sort of counter to the way they understand the practice of their faith. They ate with defiled hands, spiritually speaking. Other things were traditionally done that they, we can presume from this text, did not do. We can presume they didn't wash the cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches in the appropriate way. And so the, the scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus with a simple question. Why do your disciples not do these things? Like, what's going on? Like, are you teaching them bad? Are you um, as schismatic as we think that you may be? And so Jesus is going to answer their question in verse 5. No, he's not. They're going to ask the question in verse 5. Jesus is going to answer their question in verse 6. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Here's verse 8, the big punch after he quotes Scripture. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Essentially, why do your people not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Jesus says, because they don't have to. But even more than they don't have to, Jesus says, if they did, they'd be completely missing the point. They're not walking like you because all of you guys are hypocrites. (laughs) They're not doing the sorts of things that you guys are doing because you guys are doing the wrong things. Yeah, I know you feel good about them. Yeah, I know they feel religious. They feel feel like the right thing to do. But what I'm telling you, Jesus says, is that when Isaiah spoke of people who worship me with their externals, I mean, their internal self is so far from me, what he's talking about is really you guys. My disciples are different because you're hypocrites. They're different because they don't need to follow the tradition. You're worrying about whether my disciples follow your ceremonial laws, but all the while you're ignoring far weightier matters. When Isaiah wrote that this people honors me with their lips but not their hearts, who was he talking about? You. 
When Isaiah wrote that their worship was in vain, who was he talking about? You. When Isaiah wrote that you teach us doctrines, the commandments of men, he was talking about you then too. Boy, I think we got some folks doing that today. That's sort of a side story, and I'm not going to go into it too much. But I think in our church, our big C church today, uh, as much as we love the church, we have many among us who will often teach the commandments of men as the doctrines of God, in so doing, forsaking the weightier issues of God's word. At this point, though, we could think, well, you know what, there are, it's sort of just different interpretations, right? One interpretation is these guys are going to do these ceremonial washings, and it's their tradition, and, you know, to each his own, whatever, enjoy. Uh, but Jesus is going to go a step further and say, no, 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 this isn't just sort of a um, minutia point of disagreement. This is actually a really big deal. And he goes on to explain why that is. It's not that your, it's not that your human traditions are ineffective, Right? It's not just that they can't accomplish anything because they can't accomplish anything. But your traditions are actually leading to a blatant disregard for God's word. Your traditions are actually leading to a blatant disregard of God's word. And Jesus, being the great teacher that he is, gives an example in verses 9 through 13. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to, that in order to is really important, right? You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, and here comes the commandment of God from the mouth of Moses, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. That's pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. Verse 11, but you say, and Jesus says, here's how, here's the commandment, honor your father and mother. If you revile your father and mother, you'll die. There it is. Plain and simple. God's desire for us is that we honor our parents, that we take care of our parents from uh, when we're born to when uh, they die, if Lord willing, we, um, we outlive them, that we are supposed to love them and honor them and, and take care of them in, in many, many ways. So that's the commandment of God. Has been from the beginning, will be forever. But you say, verse 11, here comes the Pharisees' interpretation of it. Here comes their tradition that doesn't just sort of supplement the command, but in fact their tradition is going to sort of circumvent the command, and in fact their tradition is going to become, in the everyday life of the disciples, actually more important than God's command. He said, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Verse 13 is really important. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. So what is this tradition that he speaks of exactly? Well, it's clearly something that happened in the day. It's clearly something that doesn't happen as much in specificity as um, today in the Christian church, uh, that we have our own traditions that usurp God's command in other ways. But nonetheless, Jewish tradition allowed funds originally dedicated to the care of parents so, you know, your parents get older, you've got some funds set aside to, you know, send Gary Ballard to Phoenix, Arizona to watch spring training every year and do whatever. I've got my, you know, mom and dad to Phoenix fund. I don't have one of those, by the way, so <laughs> don't get too excited. I don't, I barely have my own retirement. I don't even have my own retirement fund yet. I need to do that. Write that down. <laughs> um, I've got this fund set off for mom and dad. I don't think they'd go out west. They'd probably, that's completely irrelevant. Um, I've got my funds set apart for mom and dad to go and, and retire well or to take care of them, make sure they have the medical care that they need, all those sorts of things. But instead of keeping that there for them, I say, you know what I'm going to do? Um, that capital theater note needs paid down quick. 
So I'm just going to take everything I got from my parents for the next however many years, and I'm going to take it, and I'm just going to give it away. I'm just going to, I'm going to give it to God. Surely they wouldn't be upset with me giving it to God. Mom and Dad, I was supposed to take care of you uh, by God's word, but don't worry, I gave it to God. You're going to be fine. And so there's a sense in which the parents would be sort of left out to dry because the people are trying to get overly spiritual. They're trying to act more holy than they are, and they're forgetting that God says, listen, I want you to take care of your parents, right? I want you to love the people who I've called you to love. I want you to do what I've asked you to do. Don't make up reasons not to. Don't give your money away that you set across, set aside for them. So what Jesus is saying is ultimately, you guys have devised all these schemes where you can put a spiritual veneer on all these things you're doing that are wrong. They're sinful. You shouldn't be doing them, but you're making yourself feel better about them nonetheless. Clinging to the commandments of men isn't just unhelpful. It is wrong because it leads us to completely miss the point of the command God has given. And all God's commands are good, they're glorifying to him, and they're helpful to others. They had positioned their commandments in the place of Scripture, and they had positioned themselves in the place of God. They are playing God, and they're creating their own system of ethics. They're creating their own religion. They're just doing things the way they think they should be done. But their disobedience stems from something greater. We could go on and on in our sermon today about all the problems in our church in West Virginia, in Appalachia, in the United States, about all these traditions of men that we have allowed to usurp Scripture and how we can sometimes miss the point of Scripture because we're so concerned about the traditions of men. But I don't think that's the entire point of the passage. I think we see the point as we move on, and your minds can think of a million of those examples uh, on, your own, on your own time. And many such things, at the end of verse 13, and many such things you do. He said this Corbin example, this uh, you know, parent situation, that's just one of many. You guys do all kinds of these things. And we still have many issues as well. But all their disobedience, and all my disobedience, and all our disobedience, and all your disobedience, it all stems from something deeper. And Jesus takes an opportunity in verses 14 through 23 to help us understand a little bit more why the Pharisees are doing what they're doing, why the Pharisees believe the way they believe, and how Jesus is different. Verse 14, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all of you and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Now, we've done some parables. We talked about parables a couple of weeks ago, and we did sort of a case study in parables. Some of them are kind of hard to understand when you hear them the first time, right? Uh, imagine sort of the sower and the seed, going around and sowing seed and, and it growing up differently. Until Jesus gives us the sort of key to understand what he means there, we'd be a little perplexed. But I think in this parable, we could jump right in and start to unpack it. Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So we could probably just stop right there and preach. But the disciples are confused. Uh, we see that common theme run throughout the entire book of Mark. The disciples are there, they're trying to do the right thing, but they just don't always get it. His disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Verse 18, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters his, not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, 
theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Let me make a suggestion to you before we dig in too much. If you're looking for a life verse, many people have a life verse, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Uh, that's a common one. You know, for God so loved the world that he only gave his only begotten son. That's a good one. If you're a big bacon fan, right? If you're a big bacon fan or if you're a big fan of uh, ham, because we all know ham's better than turkey, um, amen? I got a couple amen. It's more than I thought. I didn't think, I thought everyone would be like, no, that's not true. Communist. But um, I, think, I think ham's better. Nonetheless, you got a good life verse here in verse um, 19, right? Someone asked you, hey, what's your life verse? What's the most important verse to you? Well, to me, you could say it's uh, Mark 7, 19. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. You could say. <laughs> so you could say all foods are now clean, and all foods are able for me to be eaten, including things like bacon and ham. So my life verse, you could say, is Mark 7, 19. So um, they would judge you, and they probably should, um, if that was your life verse. But nonetheless, Jesus is teaching a really important point. It's not the things that go into a person that defile him, right? He said it's not the food. It's not about washing your hands. Like, yeah, I mean, if you don't wash your hands and you eat, there might be bacteria that you eat, but that's not spiritually really doing anything. Like ceremonial washing, ceremonial cleansing, that's not spiritually accomplishing anything in the food that you eat and the things that you do. All of that stuff, it, you know, it's got different tracks in your, in your body, right? It goes in your stomach and it's expelled and, and that's sort of that. He said the problem isn't what goes into you, but the problem is evidenced by what comes out of you. Your disobedience is stemming from something deeper. The reason you guys are fighting about washing your hands is because you're missing the point. And I think some of the fights we have about externals in our church today, things like tattoos, alcohol, all these crazy things we fight about, we're fighting about those things because we're completely missing the right point in the first place. So he's like, you're fighting about this and that you're having the wrong conversation altogether. We shouldn't be talking about ceremonial cleansing. Is it right? Is it wrong? I don't care. Do you want to wash your hands a certain way? I don't care. But what's a problem is that your commandments and your traditions and the things that you hold as so important, what you've done is you've created a situation where the coming generation thinks that's what the faith is all about. And I'm here to tell you that's not what the faith is all about. The issue is not external. The issue can't be solved as easily as, well, if your disciples would just wash their hands, they could keep doing what they're doing. Jesus is like, no, they can't just do that because you guys are in this external system of religion that's defunct. You guys are just performing all these rituals and rites thinking that they're earning something for you, and I will not allow my disciples to do that because that is the problem that I've come to fix. What comes out of a person that's what defiles him. I want you to know, church, Jesus is saying, it's not the things that you do that make you bad, but the evil that you do is evidence that we are born sick, that we are born with a condition that we don't control, that we are born in Adam, and we're not that different from our parents, Adam and Eve. Like Adam and Eve, we have chosen sin over God. Like Adam and Eve, God's word is clear, but we have chosen to go our own path. From within the heart of man, Jesus teaches, comes all these things. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, slander pride, foolishness. 
These evil things come from within a person. These are the sorts of things that defile a person. We can't overestimate how important this moment is in Mark's narrative. The Pharisees and Jesus have a vastly different way of understanding religion because they have a vastly different way of understanding humanity. They have a vastly different different understanding of religion because they have a vastly different understanding of humanity. The Pharisees, and like, I don't know, everyone else, believes this. Religion is mostly about external things that we do. Religion is mostly about external things that we do. Pray five times a day facing Mecca, right? Eat this. Don't do this. Observe this law. Put this thing on your arm. Put this thing on your head. Say this Shema. You know, hero Israel. Say this this many times a day. Teach your children this. Teach your kids this. Go to this event. Do this thing. Observe this holiday. Religion for most of the world and for the Pharisees is genuinely an exercise in the external. It is about the things that we can do and control in our lives and the circumstances around us. But Jesus enters the conversation and says no. No, the problem with humanity is not external. The problem with humanity cannot be fixed by anything you do. The problem with humanity is sin. There's no food or drink that will make it better, and there's no food or drink that will make it worse. Church, the roots of every human sin is in every human heart. It's a sobering thought. The root of every human sin is in every human heart. When I see uh, on, you know, Facebook or whatever, sheriff's departments and things post pictures of people that have been arrested for stuff, and the comments are always very gracious. <laughs> you know, this piece of trash, this, this, that, and the other. And they go in, and, and, and a lot of times what the person did is like inexcusable, and it's wrong, and it's heinous, and it, all kinds of things. But I've never commented. I've done a lot of stupid things in my life, and I still do some stupid things. And if you want to sit with me at lunch and, hey, what stupid things do you do? And we'll talk about them. So I'm not trying to come off as, you know, holier than thou. But I've never been tempted to sort of just jump in and say, wow, look at that loser or anything like that. Because every time I see those, every time I see that person, I see myself. Because the same root of sin that's in his or her heart is in my heart. It's not that far of a road from pornography to exploitation to abuse to rape, right? That's not a hard line to draw. We might look at one person here and say, wow, this person's evil, but really all, what has happened in their heart is the sin that might be a sapling in mine has become a full-blown tree in theirs. People will say, I've lost my faith in humanity, right? Something bad happens, oh, I've lost my faith in humanity. I can't believe they didn't do this. can't believe they didn't see this. Well, if you've lost your faith in humanity, chances are you really should never have had your faith in humanity in the first place. Did you know that both Democrats and Republicans are sinful? Did you know that everyone is sinful, that there are all kinds of issues in our lives that we see that we have to deal with. And if we place our faith in anyone, if they're a religious leader, if they're a political leader, if they are a, uh, whatever they may be, then that is, they are going to let us down. Most Christians believe in a doctrine called total depravity. And many of you have heard that word. 
Uh, total depravity means that we are born sinners, that we are born with sinful hearts. But R.C. Sproul, who's a great um, theologian pastor, he just passed away recently, I believe, um, he, instead of saying total depravity, because it makes it sound like we're all as evil as we could be, he prefers the term radical corruption. That sin in our heart is this sort of a radical corruption of God's good creation. So really, as human beings, with the root of every sin in every one of our hearts, we are totally depraved, we're totally sinful. But a better way to say that might be we are radically corrupted. That even our best efforts have a tinge of sin in them. There's pride in my wanting to do good works, for example. I heard a song that says, there's vice in all my virtue, right? All my sins hold the door for you. All my sins go to private school. All my sins know the golden rule, right? There's vice in all my virtue. That even this um, this side of eternity, there is this sin issue. We are sort of radically corrupted by sin. So if, let's follow, if the issue of the human heart is that we are radically corrupted by sin, then how is that going to be fixed? Does Jesus come and say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to institute this system where you're going to pray five times a day. You're going to drink this sort of water. You're going to eat this sort of food. And by doing that, over the course of 50 years, you will attain salvation. He doesn't do that. Our problem is that we need a new heart, spiritually speaking. And there's nothing we can do about it. But Paul writes to the church in Ephesus thus, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when, right, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when our hearts were at their worst, even when you think back to the worst moment, the most sinful moment of your life, that God in that moment loved you and he died for you and Jesus came to do what the whole system of the Pharisees could not do and that is to give you a new heart. God prophesies in the Old Testament that I will remove the heart of stone from my people one day and I will take their hard heart and I'll give them a heart of flesh and they will be my people and I will walk with them and I will lead them and I will be their shepherd and this new covenant will come and I will rule my people. I will walk with my people. They will be, have been dead, but they will be alive. And we, church, are people of the new covenant. We are people who, when we turn to Christ, our heart of stone is removed and our heart of flesh is given to us, where we will still struggle with the sin that dwells in our flesh, but we have had our name changed. We're no longer sinners categorically, but we are categorically saints. When you see then sin begin to mount in your life, what do you do? I think you fight. But the question is, how do you fight? By trying harder? No, I think this is the beauty of the gospel. You fight by resting. By resting in what's been done for you. Because Jesus came to do what the Pharisees could not do. Jesus said, I know the real issue is internal. And I'm the only one who can do something about it. So that is exactly what I've come to do. Charles Spurgeon said this. If you see in your life the evidence of sin beginning to mount and you are a Christian, but you want to fight, right? But you don't know how to fight. You want to rest in the gospel, but you don't know how to rest in the gospel. 
Let me encourage you with this quote. Spurgeon said, it's small faith to believe that God will save you when divine grace flourishes in your heart and evidence of salvation abounds. What he means is, you know, it's very little faith to believe that when you're doing really good, God saved you. It's real small faith to believe that when you're not messing up, when you're in the Bible, when you're confessing sin, when you're sharing the gospel, when you're doing all these things, it's real small faith to believe that, that Christ died for you. It's not a hard jump. I see it. Okay, I get it. But it is a grand faith to trust in Jesus. I love how he says that in the teeth of all your sins. It is grand faith to trust in Jesus in the teeth of all your sin. Notwithstanding the accusation of conscience, to believe in him who justifies not merely the godly, but the ungodly. I'm ungodly, but in Christ I've been justified. I'm a sinner, but in Christ I've been given a new name, saint. Church, this is the message that the world needs to hear. Worship team, if you guys want to come on up. About 100 years ago in a paper in London, there was a, um, I don't know the details of the story. I've told it uh, before. I think it was a call out. It was a tough time in England. Um, There was this sort of cultural question being posed of what is wrong with the world. And I think that's a question that we hear every single day, right? What's wrong with the world? Everyone's got their answer, and everyone's right, actually, believe it or not, in their own eyes. But G.K. Chesterton, a uh, Christian thinker and writer and teacher, and I think he was a journalist, I mean, he just did a lot of different things. He decided to uh, answer this inquiry in the paper. He decided to provide his voice into the many voices who are answering this question of, what is wrong with the world? And uh, he writes in, dear, you know, whatever the newspaper is, with regard to your question, what is wrong with the world, I have my answer. And he says, I am. I am. And I think there is a lesson there for a lot of us. There are a lot of fingers we can point to things in the world that are broken and wrong. But there's a lot of things I can see in my heart that are broken and wrong. This passage that we've read today in Mark 7, I think is paradigmatic for understanding why there's evil in the world. There's evil in the world quite simply because there are humans in the world. And I, I'm what's wrong with the world. C.S. Lewis um, wrote about this issue of pride. He said, I have, and this is paraphrasing, he says, I've met all kinds of people who will almost gladly admit to many sins. They'll say, you know, I, I struggle with women, you know, I struggle with the bottle, and you know, we almost like gleefully admit to some sins. Uh, last night at the concert, the old Irishman who was uh, in the band said, I would rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. And I laughed for about 20 minutes about that. But it reminded me of how, like, there are some sins that we'll just kind of admit to, right? Oh, man, I love my overeating, right? I love my women. I love my this. I love my that. And even as we become Christians, there are some sins that are kind of easier to admit to. But C.S. Lewis said, I don't think I've ever met someone who said, 
I'm really arrogant. I'm really prideful. I think, I think too much of myself. And I think he was on to something because I think we have a crisis of humility. And I think we as the church can strive to be genuinely humble people because we are the only people in the world as Christians who have that message that the problem is with me and the solution is not with me. The problem is with me and the solution is with Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, briefly I want you to know that Jesus loves you, he sees you, he cares about you, and he died for you. I want you to know that you can try to, you can come to resurrection every single week for the rest of your life and it's not going to get you to heaven. You can give and it's not going to get you to heaven. You can do a lot of things and it's not going to get you to heaven. Only trusting that Jesus came, lived the perfect life, died in your place, and rose victoriously over death. That is the message that will save you. That is the message that will rip out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That is the message that will guarantee your eternity with Christ. If you are a Christian this morning, rest. Fight! Fight sin. Fight to grow. But fight by resting. Because Jesus calls us to trust, not in the things we do, but in the things that he has done. Would you pray with me? Father, we cling to you this morning. There's nothing I can do to make myself holier or better apart from your spirit and your grace. Lord, I pray that you'll move in this place. I pray that you'll move in our hearts. We praise you for doing what only you could do. We praise you for removing our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, Lord. I thank you for changing this conversation in, with the Pharisees and moving it from a conversation about externals and saying, listen, you're hypocrites. You're, you're, you're not worshiping God the way that God wants to be worshiped, Lord. I pray that we would hear these rebukes, that we would hear these reproofs, Lord, that we would be people who don't worship in the externals, but that we would be people who worship you with our whole selves. I pray that we would not be hypocrites saying one thing, acting like one thing, leading the whole church, the whole community, the whole family, the whole world to believe that we're one thing while on the inside we're another. And I pray, Father, that where we've done that this morning, that we'd repent. That where we've put on a face, a facade, a front, that we would turn from that and turn to you because you're worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please rise and join us for one more song.